Well, as you know by now, we have been looking at these concluding verses of Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Today we conclude that study. We take up one more verse, the last verse in that little series, verse 21. So let's stand together as I read this passage through one last time. And uh, you should have it memorized by now. <clears throat> Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. You listen as I read God's word this morning. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you would now <coughs> let your word come to us in great power and be received in love with attentive, reverent, and obedient mind. And may it be to your glory and honor this morning. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as I said earlier, we now come to the end of this marvelous passage that we've been studying for this past month. And I would ask you to hold your applause to the end. Uh, <coughs> you know, as Paul wraps up this section in verse 21... You know, it's sort of like, I don't know, it's sort of like he draws back a curtain. And in this very highly imaginative and, and picturesque illustration, he introduces us to two rival kings and their competing kingdoms. And, I, and the way he gets into this illustration is by personifying the power of sin on the one hand and the power of grace. On the other. And he compares these powers to two monarchs, if you will, two kings. The one king is a bad king, 
very autocratic, tyrannical. This king has invaded our world and he's established ruthless control over all men and women. And the end of this king's rule is death. Death for everybody. This king's name is Sin. The other king is gracious and kind. He has, he's come to save us from King Sin and bring us into an eternal realm of happiness. The end of this king's uh, rule is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And this king's name is Grace. Paul says here, these two kings stand face to face. And each recognizes as his enemy the other. And they do battle. And the struggle is going on between them. Not only on the wide field of the world but in the narrow confines of each of our hearts. Now, that's a pretty good illustration because I think it tells us something very important about the aspect of grace that we might not have thought of when we first looked at it. It tells us, I think, that grace is much more than simply an attitude. It actually tells us here that grace is, in fact, a power. It's a power which reaches out to, to save those who, apart from that power, would absolutely perish. And what does that mean, Stu? Well, to use this illustration of these two rival kings, grace is it's basically, as I'm an old army guy, it's an invasion by a good and legitimate king of territory that has been usurped by a bad king. You can't always see this battle raging between these two kings because it's a spiritual battle. It's not a physical battle. But I want you to see here that this attack is every bit as massive and decisive as the invasion of the beaches of Normandy by the Allied powers as the turning point of World War II. You know, the Allies threw everything that they had into that invasion. And they won the day. And from that point on, even though there were many battles left to fight, and there were going to be many setbacks, the outcome of that war was never in doubt. From that point on, victory was assured. And I think in a very similar way, Paul assures us, he assures the Christians in Rome, he assures us, that God has thrown his entire weight behind grace. And the final outcome for us is no longer in doubt. We're going to have to fight more battles in this life. We're going to suffer some setbacks. But we can take it to the bank that King Grace will triumph over King Sin. You see, that's the main point of this verse. So we can now, now go home early, right? Not so fast. Since this is my last Sunday with you for a while, uh, I would ask your indulgence to let me sort of flesh this out a little bit. You know how us preachers like to preach. And I've still got about 25 more minutes. You know, as you, uh, as you look back through history, every single earthly kingdom has had a beginning. 
The United States of America came into being in 1776 with our Declaration of Independence from England. We gained our independence through a military victory. It doesn't always happen that way. Other kingdoms have come into existence through peaceful means. Well, what do you suppose was the origin of the kingdom of grace about which Paul is writing here in verse 21? When did it begin? When was this this kingdom of grace inaugurated? Well, the answer that the apostle Peter gives in 1 Peter 1.20 is that this kingdom of grace was inaugurated before the creation of the world. And if you look at that verse, you'll see that Peter is referring there to the decision made in the eternal counsels of the Godhead in eternity past to send God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be our Redeemer. Theologians have a name for that. They call that the covenant of redemption. And it took place before sin entered the world. In fact, it took place even before the world was created. And in that eternal covenant, God the Father said, Look, I want to show the host of heaven the nature and the power of my grace. And the way I'm going to do that is to create a world of creatures to be known as men and women. I'm going to let them fall into sin. I'm going to allow sin to reign over them, enslaving them by its power and leading them at last to physical and spiritual death. But when sin has done its worst and the condition of the race seems hopeless, I'm going to send a heavenly being of infinite grace and power to rescue them and usher in a new kingdom of grace. Who will go for me? Who will accomplish the salvation for these creatures? Well, we know the story. Jesus raised his hand. And he said, I'll do it. Send me. Here's what I'll do. I'll take the form of one of these creatures. I'll go and die for them. I'll die in their place. The innocent for the guilty. God for man. I'll bear the punishment of their transgressions. Then when I've paid the penalty for their sins so that they'll never have to suffer for it, I will rise from the dead and be for them an ever-reigning and an ever-gracious Lord. So an agreement was sealed. A covenant was enacted to establish a kingdom of grace in which Jesus would die for a people whom God would give to him. The Holy Spirit, who was also present at the inauguration of this kingdom, he covenanted to lead those whom God had first chosen for this kingdom to faith in the crucified and risen Lord, by which alone they could enter this kingdom of grace. So the kingdom of grace began with the Godhead before the foundation of the world. And over the years, that kingdom has grown. It's unfolded throughout history. It's a familiar story we're familiar with. It's the story of redemption. It's the story of the Bible. You know, and God wasted no time in announcing this kingdom. On the same day that Adam and Eve sinned, God appeared in the garden to foretell the coming of his son and his atonement for these creatures. And, you know, Adam and Eve, they probably didn't understand all that fully, but they did understand enough to believe God and look for the coming of their Redeemer, 
Now, they didn't have it all right. They first thought it was going to be their firstborn son, Cain. But they were mistaken. But they continued to look forward to a redeemer. And the Old Testament records a long period of preparation for for this new king's coming. And again, the God of all grace was doing it. You're familiar with the story. God established a godly line in the midst of the world's sin. A line in which his name was remembered. And faith in the coming Redeemer was was kept alive. Seth, the third son of Adam and Eve, he was the first of this new line. From him came others. We know about Enoch, the man who walked with God. Noah. There was Job, who said that he knew that his Redeemer lives. He would walk upon the earth. Later came Abraham, then Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's sons, the twelve patriarchs of Israel. There were priests like Aaron, prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, godly kings like David. And just before the birth of Jesus, there were people like Zechariah and Elizabeth. Joseph and Mary, Simeon and Anna and others, all of whom look forward to Christ's coming. You know, Hebrews 11.39 says, These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. All these people were saved by grace. They were part of the preparation, if you will, for God's kingdom. But the true light that gives light to every man was only then coming into the world. You know, the death of the Lord Jesus for sin is the very basis and center of God's kingdom of grace. So it shouldn't surprise us. We shouldn't be surprised to find Paul thinking of this specifically as he unfolds this illustration in this verse, saying that grace reigns through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I think his words remind us very clearly that grace doesn't mean the setting aside of God's law or the waving of justice as if God were saying, you know, hey, go ahead and sin. It doesn't matter. I'll forgive you. Well, sin does matter. It's a terrible thing. It leads to death in this life. It leads to death in the age to come. God does not overlook sin. He deals with sin. Christ died for sin. And God counts Christ's divine and utterly perfect righteousness as our own. Well, you know, as a kingdom moves along in history, it's much more than territory. As it grows, it needs citizens. And God is in the business of providing subjects for his kingdom of grace. How does he do that? Well, theologians speak of something called the Ordo Salutis, or the order of salvation. It refers to those steps that God takes to bring citizens into his kingdom. Well, how does it work? Well, first, there's foreknowledge. It means that God takes saving notice of these would-be citizens of his kingdom, and he sets his favor on them. He gives them his grace. Second, there's predestination or election. And this means that in the eternal counsels of his will, God has determined to save them by bringing them to Christ. 
Third, there's effectual calling. This is the call of the gospel. It actually produces a proper believing response in God's elect. It's like the, it's like the calling of Lazarus, which brought him from the dead back into life. The fourth step is regeneration. This is a, a spiritual quickening. It's a making alive. Everything that becomes good in us flows from this regeneration. The fifth step is repentance and faith. We turn from sin and believe on Jesus because we've been made alive. We've been regenerated. Sixth is sanctification. The new life of Christ within the believer works itself out in an increasing growth of holiness and good works. And the final step is glorification, in which we are made into the image of Jesus Christ without sin forever. And that happens when Christians die and go to heaven. You know, think of all that. You know, I cannot imagine any more glorious unfolding of the kingdom of grace but toward you and me than that. Dear ones, this is the power of God. Providing for and then actually saving us who apart from it would certainly be lost. Grace is more than an attitude. It is a power. You see, if grace were only a handout or an offer to help, we would certainly perish. The only reason that we're saved is that grace first provides the way of salvation and then actually reaches out to turn us from sin, to quicken us, and to draw us to salvation. This is a great power. And, dear ones, it is all of God. You know, what a marvelous unfolding of the kingdom of grace throughout history. And as you know, there were times when it looked like it was going to end. But God always intervened in history to keep it moving forward. Well, what about the nature of the reign of God's grace? What can we say about that this morning? What does it look like? Well, we've talked about this somewhat already, but the first thing that I can say is that the reign of grace is bountiful. Verse 20 says that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Grace, God's grace, never ends. It goes on. It overflows with benefits. It's never odious. You know, I think D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it best. What he says, I think, is so much on target that I recommend you memorize it. He says this, grace always gives, whereas sin always takes away. Grace always gives, whereas sin always takes away. You know, sin, this tyrannical king, he says exactly the opposite. He tells us that he'll give us all that we've ever wanted or hoped for. He says that grace is going to deprive us of all that. Sin says, you know, look at these Christians. They never have any fun. They always look like they've been eating persimmons. Look at all the things they, that, that they can't do. And all too often, like the prodigal son, what do we do? We listen to this bad king. We take our inheritance. We, we journey into a far country where we don't have to listen to the good king's voice. We don't have to respond to his will. And what do we do there? We spend our assets on wild living. We waste our inheritance. 
And when we come to the end of our days, it's all gone. Sin has taken it all. And we find, as the prodigal did, that no one will give us anything. In the end, when we look to King Sin, whom we followed and asked for his help, he laughs at us as he reaches out to snatch away even life itself. Dear ones, follow King Sin and he will rob you of your innocence. He will rob you of your character. Follow King Sin and he will wither away your health. Follow King Sin and he will turn to ashes even the common, most precious things of life. Things like friendship, love, laughter, the innocence of children, hope, contentment. Follow King Sin and he will usher you to damnation and he will laugh at you as you stagger through the door. But follow the king whose name is Grace and things will be totally different. You know, Grace sees you staggering and comes alongside to help you, bears you up. Grace sees us destitute He pours the inexhaustible riches of Christ and the Father into our very laps. Grace sees us dying and imparts eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace says, what do you need? Tell me. Tell me anything at all. And then grace provides that need in accordance with God's perfect wisdom, his invincible power and his unlimited supply. But you see, grace isn't only bountiful. Grace is also invincible. You know, some of you may be saying, you know, can you really say that, Stu? Is grace really invincible? In this life, it's it's not always true that good triumphs over evil. Can anything as good as grace really triumph in the end? How can we know that in the end, sin will not somehow still be there to assert its rule and snatch God's bountiful gifts out of our hands? How can we know that? Well, I think that would certainly be possible if it were only my grace or your grace that we're talking about here. Sin would indeed snatch our good gifts away. We, would, we couldn't stand against King's sin. But praise God, it's not my grace. It's not your grace that's reigning. It is the grace of God. And God is the Almighty One. Who can stand against God or His purpose? You know, I just I want to remind you of what Paul says in Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. He says, you're familiar with this passage. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, 
We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Dear ones, never doubt it. In the end, King Grace will prevail. He will triumph over King Sin. God's grace is indeed invincible. You know, Charles Wesley had it right in that great hymn of his, the great hymn of the church. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. There are no triumphs anywhere like those triumphs. There are none so happy. There are none so certain. Dear ones, let grace triumph in you. Yield to it. Yield to the grace of God in Christ. Open your arms to grace and let grace draw you to the winning side. Well, that basically concludes five studies in this, what I think is a very remarkable passage. But I want to sum up just very quickly and I want to offer to you this morning two key principles which I think are exemplified in this text and they are important for us to take away. There's, there's obviously more. I want to mention just two to you. The first principle is that God takes sin seriously. You know, throughout the Bible and in the world about us, men and women are constantly, constantly trying to minimize sin and its consequences. But the Bible constantly emphasizes the seriousness of sin. And this text, I think, dramatically illustrates that. You know, look at the devastation. One sin brought to the human race. Adam's sin brought about his own death, but it also condemned all mankind to death. You know, who can say that sin is not serious? You know, you think about it. Most people today wouldn't even call what Adam did a sin. You know, look. What he did was a, just a little piccadillo. It wasn't even a felony. It was a misdemeanor. You know, sort of like spitting on the sidewalk. You know, Adam simply ate the fruit of the tree. Now, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal was that God told Adam not to do that. An act which I think today men would hardly even think of as sin becomes the cause of man's downfall. God does indeed take sin seriously, and so must you and I. So that's one principle. The second principle is that, we've mentioned this many times, our identity today, man's identity today is found either in Adam or in Christ. You know, both Adam and Christ were appointed by God to be representatives for other men. God appointed them to stand for others. And both became heads of particular bodies of people. Each is the source of what could be called either the old or the new humanity. The old humanity, I mentioned this before, is the race as it stands apart from Jesus Christ, following sin, headed for destruction. It's what we see today around us in the world. The new humanity is all redeemed people who have been saved by Jesus. And you see, the entire human race 
is divided into these two humanities by virtue of their relationship to these two representatives. You know, to sort of look at that principle of our identity in either Adam or Christ a little bit in another way, you know, as I was reading this week, I am persuaded that this passage in Romans 5 explains the words of our Lord spoken to Nicodemus better than any other New Testament text. You remember the story over in John 3. Jesus said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And in that text in John 3, John introduces Nicodemus as a Pharisee. He introduces him as a ruler of the Jews. And Jesus says that he's a teacher of Israel. Now, with those credentials... Nicodemus, this renowned teacher, he had to have taught about Adam, about his fall, about the downfall of the human race. But if he was like the rest of the Pharisees, and I'm persuaded that he was, he trusted in his physical descent from Abraham and in the possession of the law to save him. Now, what an absolute shock it must have been for Nicodemus. When Jesus told him that entrance into God's kingdom of grace requires the second birth. Yet, you know, if you think about it, this expression, born again, it should not have been a foreign thought to Nicodemus. It should have caused him, as it does us today, to think in those terms in which Paul speaks of in Romans 5. How was it that the human race fell into sin? Paul tells us it was on account of Adam. Nicodemus should have seen that. But how did each individual fall under the curse? It was by being born. Birth made one a son of Adam and thus a sinner. We inherited his sin. And you see, the solution to the guilt of sin encountered at birth was another birth. A second birth by God's grace. To be saved... Men must exchange their identity with Adam, by which they're condemned, to an identity with Christ, by which they're justified. You know, a birth was the source of man's sin, so another birth is the solution. You see, that's what the gospel is all about. Jesus Christ came to earth to offer men a cure for the curse which Adam's sin brought upon all mankind. You see, the gospel confronts us with a choice. Will we remain in Adam, subject to the penalty of death, or will we accept God's gracious provision for a new identity in Christ? You know, being born again is our Lord's way of speaking at that point in a person's life when they acknowledge their own sin, their own guilt, and the just sentence upon them of death. It's ceasing to trust in what we are and clinging to who Jesus Christ is. It's finding our identity in Christ rather than in Adam. It's turning from condemnation to justification, from death to life, from Adam to Jesus Christ. And so the question this morning is, have you been born again? You know, it was necessary for Adam and Eve necessary for Job. It was necessary for Nicodemus, a famous religious leader and teacher. It's also necessary for you, and it's necessary for me.
Will you choose death or life? Will you choose sin or grace? Adam or Christ? Dear ones, there's no more important decision you will ever make than this. The salvation which God has offered in Jesus Christ, it's there, but it's not automatic. It has to be received. And I would pray that if you haven't done so, you would receive it today. May God make it so in every heart. Amen and amen.